All right. Um, if you have your Bible this evening, we're going to be uh, reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Give you a moment to turn there. Uh, we'll be reading the first 11 verses. Uh, we'll be covering pretty much the entire chapter this evening. Uh, but for the reading introduction, we're going to start with the first 11 verses. Um, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, in my Bible, that's page 1216, but you maybe have a different one. So it's First uh, Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I'll begin, re- begin reading in verse 1. If you can follow along. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goeth to the law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. If you would, uh, go to the Lord in prayer with me this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity uh, to read from your word. And I pray, Father, that you would be with uh, my clarity of thought. Help me to, to speak clearly. Pray, Father, that the truths that are here in your word would uh, convict us and challenge us to live closer. Um, and may we you know, seek to glorify you in everything that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, first of all, I know most of you, if you're here on a Thursday night, you know, one, you, you, are, you are among the faithful. So this, this passage right here, sometimes it may seem like this is like a very big, like, one of those passages that's kind of like, you guys aren't doing something right. Um, and that's not necessarily the, 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 the tone that I would like to, to, to bring out in this message this evening. Uh, but there is, there is a great truth here that I believe is applicable to everyone, regardless of you know, the situation. Like, in the Corinthian church, there was a lot of immorality going on, and that's not necessarily something that's going on in this church, where something needs to be corrected, but there are some really great truths here that can help us live, and, and the title of this message, just so you know, is, the, 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 the subtitle of this message, anyways, is Glorifying God in Our Current World, or in Our Current Culture. Like, so, glorifying God in the present day. And, if you think about, like, our current society, 
that's a, a great challenge, but I believe this passage right here is going to give us some, some great insight to how to do that. Now, a couple of these verses that may have sounded familiar were the last couple that we read. I would say verse 11 is probably ranked among those very commonly known verses where it says, and such were some of you. You have this list of ten egregious sins that are just horrible. And it comes out with this passage and it says, you know, that that verse, and such were some of you. Now, I think this kind of ranks up there in the world along that verse where it says, judge not. And a lot of people, I think, in the world have this idea and they take this passage or that verse to say, well, you know what? The people in the church were just as bad as us, so it makes no difference about what we do. Like, it's not like they were any better than us. And in a lot of cases, they use this almost as a way to say, well, our sin isn't bad, because people in the church used to sin, and even if they don't, they still kind of think about it. And the, the passage here isn't just saying, people in the church used to be sinners, so the sin that's going on in the world is okay. It's not, that's not what's, what's being addressed here. Now, that verse, and we're going to draw this out in the context, is showing a transition from the way we were to the way we are or the way we're supposed to be. And the first verses, I want to kind of go through this. The first eight verses go over the law or as far as like legal matters. And specifically, it's not talking about criminal justice cases where, you know, somebody murders your family member and you want justice and well, you're a Christian, so you should forgive them because, you know, they're a murderer, but you should forgive them. It's not talking in this passage about criminal cases where you demand justice for something. What this passage is dealing with in those first eight verses has to do with civil matters. And it kind of goes through some of these things, but it's, it's a very interesting concept here because it goes through and Paul asks some very pointed questions as you think about different instances that come up when you might want to take somebody to court. Now, I want to backtrack for a second. I want to tell a story. But really embarrassing story. How many of you ever had a job interview? Anybody here gone for a job interview? All right, so I'm about to tell you a story. And whatever you think of your worst job interview experience, I will beat you. This, no matter what, this is the worst experience. Nobody will... If you do after, afterwards, tell me, and I'd love to hear the story. But I was actually interviewing while I was... I had finished college, and I was interviewing at a church to become an assistant pastor. So I was up at this church, visiting, spending some time with, you know, the, the pastor and family and the church, and just getting to know everybody there, just kind of see if it would be something where God would lead me there, and if it would be a fit, everything else. And... While I'm there, we were, there was an event going on, and something was needed. So I had to take the church van to go pick something up. When I was parking the church van, it was only the second time I'd ever driven a 15-passenger van. I scraped up the side of the van, turning sharply at one corner. The entire side of the van was destroyed. To make it worse, the object which I hit 
was a vehicle of a person who was looking at coming to join the church. Now, in, in regards to, like, instances when a really bad experience, when it comes to that one. Now, here's the thing. That's a really bad job interview experience. But here's the thing. We were all Christians. I knew I was at fault. It was my fault. I didn't try to pass the blame on there. I took responsibility for it. I was like, I'm going to pay for the damages. My ins- you know, it was filed under my insurance. The claim was under to me. I didn't have this, this you know, thing like, well, I was, you, you, why did you have me drive? I didn't balk at anything. I took responsibility. I paid for my actions. I didn't fight against that. The same, at the same token, the pastor and his other brother didn't sit there and, like, harass me and call me, like, Are you, you're going to pay for that. It was kind of this assumed thing. You know what? I did something wrong. I damaged your property. I'm going to fix it. And that was it. You know what happened after that? Not one court case, not one proceeding. At no point did I ever get sued or did I ever try to not pay for anything that I had caused damages for. Now, that's not to brag on me, but I'm just saying that in relationship to certain things, as a Christian brother, I wasn't interested in trying to pass the buck off to him and in the context, in the words here, defraud a brother... And at the same time, he didn't see this as an opportunity to say, you know what, those damages were, you know, it's $500 to fix it. I bet I can get about $2,000 from him. If I go to court, I bet I can get, I may even be able to get 3000 He could have defrauded me. Now, in both instances, the person who goes to court is the one in the wrong, according to this passage, when you're two brothers. In Christ, you should be able to work out things amicably. And you know what the great thing about it was? Neither one of us had hard feelings about it. We actually kind of thought it was funny. And then, interestingly, the van, before I actually had to end up paying for the entire damages, was actually hit by a bear. Like, two weeks later, when it was being taken in to be fixed. And so, their insurance actually covered all the damages... And I actually ended up having not even to pay half of what I was supposed to in the beginning because their insurance actually covered it as a wildlife cause of nature thing. Now, I was very fortunate about that one, ironically. But the thing is, it, it goes to show the fact that when it comes to brothers in Christ and there's a legal matter or a civil case, there should be enough civility between brothers in Christ that you can settle an issue without having to go to court and demand it. Now, the, the biggest problem about going to court, and it's drawn out in this passage, is the fact that two people who are in the church and are saved, they have their brothers in Christ, their family. And as much as you may have issues with your family, your family. And as you're coming into court here, you have this, this bickering going on. And I want you to just imagine in, that, in my situation... What if I had said, you know what, I refuse to pay for anything. I don't care if it's my fault. I refuse to. And we went to court. Do you know who we're going to sit in front of in court? Most likely, a person who's not saved. And do you know what this person in court who's not saved is going to see? Oh, these Christians, 
don't take responsibility for their actions. They want to get one up on the other person. And they're no different than everybody else who walks in front of me in this court. Now, back in this day, there was a, a great proliferation of lawsuits in Rome. You know, nothing like today. But um, similar to today, where people are going to court for everything. And in the context of church, you know, like you can think of instances and stories of, of places where churches have split and people have sued the pastor for this or the pastor sued the church for this. And there's these things going on in these court cases over, for lack of a better word, stupid things. Like, I, I remember hearing stories when I was a kid of churches who would split because people couldn't agree over the color of the carpet. And these trivial matters take precedence over spiritual, eternal matters. And as you listen, as you read down through these questions, it, it's, it's amazing just the thought process that goes as you look at here, and if you just think about the fact of what's happening here. So, first of all, he starts off, like, dare you, any of you, like, like do any of you dare to go before an unjust person rather than the saints? So, if, if there's an instance where one of you in here and myself couldn't agree, you know what we could do? We could go to another Christian brother and get their input on something and say, hey, you know what, could you kind of be a tiebreaker on us on this thing? We're kind of like having an issue and kind of coming to a consensus on something. Could you maybe arbitrate for us and help us figure something out? Or, you know what, maybe if you have an argument with one of your other brothers or sisters in Christ, the two of you could go to Pastor or Miss Julia and say, you know what, we're having an issue with something and it's really stupid, but can you help us kind of figure out kind of like a way to to amicably agree to this and, and figure out something going on? And... Rather than going to an unjust person and saying, you know what, we're Christians and, and we're, we're, so, we're so into having my own way that I want to make, you have to make them see it my way. Do any of you dare to do that? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Now, speaking in future context, when we come back to reign with Christ, do you think the trivial matters that you're kind of bickering about today are going to have any importance then. Yet, you, who will be judging in the future, are subjecting yourselves to the unjust person who isn't going to be there. You're going to be judging them, but you're subjecting yourself to them to judge you. That doesn't make sense. And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So think about that. In the future, you're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. Don't you think you can figure out these little petty things here today? Know you not that you shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. So if you can't figure something out, just appoint somebody in the church to figure it out. The, the big thing here as it goes through... All eight of these verses, it continues on this idea of don't go to somebody who's unjust to have them figure out matters for people who are justified. Now, in verse 5, continue on. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you? Like you couldn't find one person in the church who could give you some godly or godly counsel? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. 
Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Now, here's the question as well. So when you go to court case, again, the example of when I, I wrecked the car, what if I had refused to pay and take response and taken responsibility for anything? Now, I would I would be wrong, right? If I didn't take responsibility now. There's no reason there's in, in our mind. It's very easy to justify saying, you know what? My brother in Christ is refusing to take responsibility for his actions. By all rights, I should be able to go out and seek restitution. It makes sense. But the challenge here is, why are you going to take your brother to court? Is it, why do you not take rather the wrong? Because the the challenge here is like, you know what, yeah, that person wronged you, but it's a civil matter. It's not a matter of justice, but is it, is it so important to you that you get that little bit of money? Like, is that little bit of money more important than the testimony of your church? Now, that's not to say that somebody who's acting like a scoundrel and saying, well, I'm a Christian, you can't sue me, just to, to get away with something, they're not acting properly but the question is if if two of you in here in this room just randomly picked out two of you and had an issue would it be more important that you were right than to the testimony of the church if you're in if you're in before a judge or before a case and they come and it comes out that you're both members of the same church what does that look like for the church what does that do for the testimony of christ (coughs) now that's not to say one person is right or wrong but the question here is, why don't you just take the wrong? Why don't you just take the offense? Now, in the context of this, if there is a brother who's, who's not taking responsibility for something and the matter is brought before the church, do you know what happens, according to Matthew, when a brother goes to a brother and they refuse and then they bring the matter before the church? If the brother refused to hear the church, what happens to them? They're kicked out of the church. Then they're responsible to the world. So if there's a brother in Christ who offends you in the church and you go to them and you try to correct it and they refuse to, your correction, according to Jesus and Matthew, the responsibility is you go to the church and if they refuse to listen to the church, the church kicks them out and they exercise church discipline until they get the matter corrected. When the person repents and takes care of the actions, then you can seek the restoration. There's a, there's a matter of, of recti- you know, of, of responsibility here. And what Jesus or what Paul is saying here is the idea that, you know what, well, why don't you take the wrong? It's on that person. You take the offense. Because I would rather protect the testimony of the church and let God take care of the wrongdoing. Because while you're seeking justice or you're seeking your own way, you, you, if, you, if you diminish the testimony of the church then people are not going to glorify God. But if you say, you know what, I'm going to take the offense. I brought it before the church. I followed the course of action. That person is, is, you know, we exercise church discipline. That person leaves the church. Now, they're under God's judgment until they get that corrected. And I'd much rather that person face the judgment of God than me face the judgment of God because I demanded my own way in a civil court. Now, it's not saying you can't go to the court, but the question is here, is that more important 
than the testimony of Christ in our lost world. Now, as we continue on here, I want you to see the transition here. In verse 9, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that long list there, as it comes in here, when it says, and such were some of you, you have to place this in the context of what was just said. The context is, when you look at the world of those who are unjust, this listing describes them. So now, it says, you, such were some of you. You have been sanctified, justified, and washed. So, you were involved in all these wicked sins. Christ paid for those sins, justified you, and sanctified you, forgave you those sins. So now you're saved, and you're in right standing with God. So all those things that you were, that, that defined you before, those are gone. So now... You are no longer an idolater, an adulterer, a fornicator, effeminate, abuser of mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkard, reviler, or an extortioner. That's no longer you. But now that you are justified and set apart to Christ, why would you take your matters to those people who are not involved or who are not going to be a part of the kingdom of God? It continues on the same thought. You were a part of that group. Why would you go to that group of people who were under God's judgment to seek restitution or to judge you on your civil matters? You're not a part of that group anymore. You're transitioned somewhere else. You are a part of a different group. You no longer fall under those categories of those sins. So why would you go to people who are involved in those sins to help you figure out the small, little, petty matters of day-to-day life. Like, if you're bickering over somebody with a brother, like, if you're bickering over something with a brother in Christ, why would you go to an adulterer or an idolater to seek to fix your problem? Why would you go to somebody for an answer who's involved in one of these sins? You have a righteous judge. You have godly counsel in your church. Why not go to one of them? But what happens is, if you forget where you came from and what God transitioned you into, you're going to continue to go to the world to seek your answer. But they don't have it. The world isn't justified. They're not washed. They're not sanctified. So, if you have named the name of Christ and you're saved, you are set free from those lifestyles or those sins that dominate your life. Why go to somebody who's dominated by those in their life to seek answers for your own life? What should be done is you should live a life so far above reproach and you should be so willing to take offense that when people out in the world see, you know what? There's something different about those people there. They see the difference in the fact that you're not clamoring for your rights. You're not clamoring to get justice. You're not clamoring to get your money back. Oh, they wronged me that $50. So you're going to take them to court over $50? And 
it continues on here. Now, as we read out through the rest of the chapter, I want you to kind of see the transition here. He continues on in this passage. It says, in verse 13, or no, in verse 12, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Now, there is a particular phrase that has kind of like permeated our culture today. It's, it's my body. How many of you have heard that phrase and know what I'm talking about? It's my body. So many people are, are so obsessed with, it's my body. Now, the argument is, it's my body, so I can dictate what I do with my own body. If I consent to something, whatever I consent to is okay, regardless. There's, the, the idea is that I am the final authority when it comes to my body. Now, two problems with that. One, God created our bodies, so regardless of who you are, whether you're saved or not saved, God created your body. Your body is his. Now, if you have been redeemed and you name Christ as your savior, you're bought with a price. The price was Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And if you name the name of Christ, you're bought with a price. And that argument of, it's my body, you now lose on two counts. So, whoever you are, your body is God's. If you're saved, it's doubly so. You, your body is God's. Now, the passage here, it almost seems very interesting. I, I think it's... It's almost interesting the fact that God seems to know our culture and how applicable this is to our culture today. And I think there's two reasons for that. One, God knows the human heart. And the human heart today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago and 6,000 years ago. The human heart is the same. So when God is speaking to this, he understands the human condition. And the human condition hasn't changed in 2,000 years or 6,000 years. People back then had the same attitude then as they do now. And the idea is, it's my body. Here, people are saying, well, it's lawful for me. I can do it. Here, you know, it's like, if I want to, it's okay. But a couple things that Paul states, brings out here is, you know what? As much as you think that fornication is your choice, if you choose it, it you, you can't choose the consequences. 
it, there's a, it's a matter of sin, and there is, there's a result and there are consequences of acting immorally that you can't choose. You, you can decide what you want to do, but you can't choose the consequences for your choices. And in here, what Paul is bringing out is the idea that, you know what, certain things are lawful for you. You can do them according to the law. But it's not your body. And those things that aren't expedient, you shouldn't demand your rights in those instances. And you should be willing to subjugate your rights to God's desires and God's wishes. And Paul is saying here, I'm not going to, even though I could do whatever I want, I'm not going to bring my body under the subjection of anything. He's talking about food, but then he carries over to fornication and says, you know what? I'm not going to bring my body under the subjection of anything. I'm not going to allow anything other than God to control my decisions and my thought life and, my pro- and the processes of my life. Because he comes down to this understanding that I'm bought with a price and it's my responsibility to glorify God in my body and in my spirit because they are God's. Now, or they, because they belong to God. Now, that continues on from that whole context. If you go back to the court case, what really is the matter? When you think back of those first eight verses, the, the real matter of going on, like if, if I were to take somebody to court here over some small slight, do you know what the issue is? I want my way. If you think about people who sue people for the, the idea of a frivolous lawsuit, why are they doing a frivolous lawsuit? So they can get money. Now, in some cases, is there a wrong that took place? Yeah. But you know what? Some, in a lot of cases, they, they look at, they see dollar signs. They're like, oh, that person, they had no idea what they were doing. They weren't really trying to hurt me, but I can make it seem like they were. And I can get a million dollars for it. And people here in this court, that's what was going on here. Now, back in the day, I was actually reading a little bit of the history of the court's and how things would go on, like in, in jury process, and defending yourself in Rome. And the big problem when it says taking somebody to brother, <coughs> to court, it's just like today. If you think about a frivolous lawsuit, even if you, have to, if you have to defend yourself against a ridiculous lawsuit, you're out the time and the money to defend yourself against a ridiculous accusation that, you know what, it might be easy for you to prove but there are some people who have to plea out or they have to bargain because they can't afford to go through the process of litigation. And they can't afford the time off of work to go to court. People who don't work, they go out and they sue somebody who has a job knowing that, you know what? I'm going to be able to show up for court because I have no responsibilities and you can't. I'm going to win by default. It's a ridiculous system, but that's the way it works. That shouldn't be the way it is for Christians. When we think about this, this culture around us of, you know what? I can do whatever I want because it's my body. I can make my own decisions. I'm not responsible to God for anything. We cannot, as Christians, get sucked into that world. We cannot get sucked into that mindset. When it talks about this idea of such were some of you, you're washed, you're justified, you're sanctified. Those words actually mean things. Washed. That means that your sin that was putrid before God, Christ's blood washed that away. 
completely. You're clean. You're made white as snow. You're just sanctified. That means you're set apart. You're distinct to God. You're separate. You're special to God. You're separated from what you were before, and you're different. Justified. This is actually a really cool one. It means, I, the, the best definition I, I have ever heard of this one was, in God's eyes, it's just as if you'd never sinned. Christ's righteousness is put over you. So when God looks at you in your sin, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ's righteousness in, his, in the place. So all of my sin, all those things that I was or that I could have been in the past, they're gone. They're under the blood. I'm not responsible for that anymore. I have an opportunity to live a life dedicated to Christ. And you know what? It's, it's freeing. I can glorify God in my body, and I don't have to worry about getting right or getting back at this person for that or getting back at this person for that. I don't have to worry about getting my way here or getting my way there. I can say, you know what? It's in God's hands. This person wronged me. Hey, you know what? You wronged me. Oh, I'm sorry. What can we do to fix it? Oh, I refuse to, I refuse to take that responsibility. You know what? Let me take it to the church. Oh, you know what? This person is restricting their responsibility to a brother in Christ. Okay. God's judgment's on them now. We have to, we have to take a step back from this attitude. Because the idea here, this whole big idea... It comes down to this, this last verse. For you bought with the Christ, you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. That word glorify is just exactly what it sounds like. It means to bring glory to God. Now, think about our world right now. Just in the present context of everything going on. So many people are demanding their own way and trying to push their agenda or push this or push that on other people. And more and more you hear every day, it's like, well, that's not what I want. It's not what I want. That's not what I want. That's not what I want. Over and over and over again, people are demanding what they want. And their desires are the most important thing. Being right is the most important thing for them. They don't care about anybody else but themselves. And the thing is, we can expect that from deceivers, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, and that list. But that's not what we should see in the church. We shouldn't see that displayed in the church. And the thing I think is so great about the idea of being washed and justified and sanctified. Now, if you think about 12-step programs, sometimes they're great. If people went through them, you know, I'm not, I'm not dogging that one. But you know what, the one thing I noticed about the, the 12-step programs is, just thinking about AA, sobriety chips. Do you know what the sobriety chip says? I've been sober six months. I've been sober 12 months. I've been sober five years. There's a point in the Christian's life when your sin doesn't define you anymore. The thing I have a problem with in some of the 12-step programs is your sin defines you for the rest of your life. But that's not the way God does it. He says, such were some of you. That's past tense. You're not that anymore. So while you're in the church, don't, don't get sucked in to this whirlpool or this cesspool of mine, 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 mine. Be willing to take it on the cheek a couple of times. Be willing to take the offense. Be willing to be different from the rest of the world 
Because you know what? As the world gets more and more sucked into this idea of mine, 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 when they see somebody who doesn't have that message, they're going to clamor to us because they're going to get so sick of people demanding their own way that when somebody can take an offensive word with a smile and move on, this is going to be refreshing. And we're going to be able to glorify God in our present life. I was thinking about this actually a couple of weeks ago as well. In, in this passage actually, when, as I was working through this, it kind of came to mind as well. But I was thinking, in, in America, just, just a food for thought. Are you a Christian because we have freedom? Or are you a Christian because Christ gave his life for you? You know, there, there are Christians in other places in the world where they don't have freedom. And making the decision to follow after Christ is actually dangerous to them because they look at the riches that Christ offers and they see how much it far outweighs the threat of, of death to them. Sometimes I don't think we don't recognize how awesome the gift of Christ is because we have such an easy life here in America. And we can take for granted our freedoms. But when I look at this, here it says, We are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of the Lord. It's Christ, it's God who sanctifies us and gives us salvation. It's Him who we can thank for our freedom and our justification and being washed of our sins. No, no man did that for me. Christ did that for me. And that's the basis by which we can go out, take a wrong from somebody, but we can turn around and glorify God and say, you know what? My relationship to God is more important than your offensive word or your mocking, chiding comment to me. And as people get more and more caught up in that, be the refreshing difference in the world. And that is going to bring glory to God. When people look at that and say, oh, wow, if a Christian joins in that chorus of, I want my way, you just get caught up in the whole chorus of people complaining and whining for their own way. Let's have a distinct voice. The challenge, the full title for this message tonight was, Not My Body. It's, it's not my body. It's not your body. Your body is Christ's. So, as he says here, you're bought with a price, price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This evening, let's go ahead and um, bow our heads, close our eyes. Um, I don't know if we'll have the piano play for just a moment. Um, while the piano's playing, um, if you had, if, you know, if God challenged you from the word this evening, you know, take some time. You can come forward. You can kneel at your, at your pew there. We'll go ahead and take some time just to, to respond back to God. If God spoke to you this evening, speak back to him. Respond.
right, so I guess page 51. 